We hope you'll enjoy this episode of Women Worth Knowing. Make sure you rate us on your podcast app, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Hello, this is Cheryl Broderson in studio with Jasmine Allnut. And we are so excited to bring you another podcast. And we're still with the reform. Coming out of that movement, right, into like the post-Reformation now, uh, today we're going to do the Puritans. We'll start with some Puritans, actually. Mm-hmm. And and we're going to England, aren't we? Yes, we are. We are go- we're going back to England. Sorry, guys. You thought we were going to get away from there. We can't. And we're going to go to Bedfordshire, right? <laughs> yes. Very good. Yes. yes. So, uh, yes, today uh, we are, like I said, we're moving now into like the 1600s. And so I wanted to just look today at a couple of remarkable Puritan wives um, there were a lot of other Puritan women, I think, that'll come up later. I know you had mentioned, Cheryl, like Anne Hutchinson, Anne Bradstreet. I think we talked about a couple mm-hmm. of them. And we some talked about the Margarets um, in a previous podcast. They were, were they Puritan? I guess they were, huh? Mm-hmm. And yeah. they were they were contemporaries of uh, the women we're going to talk about today. Ooh, okay. Because it was all during the reign of Charles, well, Charles I, uh, um, Oliver Cromwell, and Charles II. Right, in that so window it's, there. it's that time period that we'll yeah, be talking about. Yeah, that's true. Okay, that's true. So, yeah, so that'll be a little bit familiar, hopefully, to everyone. Uh, but I just wanted to highlight uh, these women. They're, they're actually, their husbands are very famous, but they could not have done what they did without the wives. And so I thought, let's, highlight, let's shout out these gals. So... <laughs> Um, the first one is Elizabeth Bunyan, and the last name might sound familiar to some of you if you recall that John Bunyan— Pilgrim's Progress. Wrote Pilgrim's Progress. I was just going to say, Cheryl, what book did he write? Yes. yes. Oh, I like that. <laughs> he wrote Pilgrim's Progress, which is, believe it or not, the second best-selling book historically after the Bible. Wow. Yeah. I mean, nowadays we have all that mass mar- mass media printing, you know, how they do that. I'm sure, like, by now, the Harry Potter series is the most— published book. But (laughs) historically speaking, Pilgrim's Progress was always in second place behind the Bible. I think number three was Uncle Tom's Cabin, which is pretty crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, So, of course, he wrote that classic novel, but his wife is rarely mentioned. Um, John actually had two wives who were spiritually night and day. His first wife, uh, her name we think was Mary, Um, She idolized her dad, who was uh, this very upright, godly man. And so she wanted John to be just like her father, which, as you can imagine, would cause some tension in the marriage from time to time. And so she was always comparing the two men. She was, I think, godly on some level, but she was always comparing them. And so John always felt like he had to kind of live up to her standards. And this was especially hard because he was just a tinker, which was a a man who repaired pots and pans. And he was a traveling tinker. Mm -hmm. So he would go with a little cart with all of his tools on it. Um, Something interesting, though, um, you can see his hammer at the John Bunyan Museum in Bedfordshire. Really? Ooh. Mm -hmm. And I remember hearing J. Verdon McGee saying he wanted to show off for his wife. So he picked it up and he couldn't believe how heavy it was. And he thought, John Bunyan strapped this thing onto his back and would take it from town to town. Oh, my gosh. So he was he was very strong. Oh, I'm sure. Some burly guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Man, back then, yeah, they did not have, like, lightweight materials. <laughs> They're using, like, iron. And so, yeah. So they were, you know, this is what he did for a living. And, man, it was a very, very poor source of income. They didn't have a whole lot to live on. So he was just under, I think, a lot of pressure. He wanted to look like a godly man for her and all of that. Um, He was very sensitive. He went through bouts of rebellious sin, and then he'd swing and swing back the other way and have these extreme shows of repentance. He just 
couldn't really um, figure out how to have a relationship with the Lord other than by by works and trying to be a good man. And so finally, he got truly saved after overhearing a conversation about the Lord between these two women, three little, yeah, two, yeah, these little Baptist ladies that were attend. They were talking about attending their church and talking about the Lord, and yeah. And it was so um, unique to the conversations that he was used to hearing mm. women. Mm-hmm. Gossip. Um, and, right. And yeah. here are these women, and they were talking about, and I remember reading um, in his autobiography how he said they were talking about Jesus as their friend. Oh, I Someone love it. close and not far off, someone that they communicated with and knew. I oh, love that, too. That's so sweet. And clearly, that was an experience he didn't have. Because to him, God was, you know, just watching him to make sure he did the right things. And, you know, so to realize you could have a relationship. That's and, so sweet. And it is important, I think, to bring out that with his first wife, he mm. had four children. Yes. Mary, the oldest, who was blind. And she's a story all in herself. He he actually wrote at one point a story about her. She would bring mm. him food to the prison. And she was the one who would come with the food, and mm. she would sing to him. So sweet. And so uh, Mary was his oldest, and she was blind. Then Elizabeth, and then John, and Thomas was the youngest. Mm, that's so sweet. Yeah, man, that's that is good to to note. So yeah, so they had they did have four children. Um, she had very difficult pregnancies. Um, and so, in, actually, in 1658, she ended up dying, presumably from childbirth complications. But at this point, uh, John, because he had gotten saved now, uh, he had really just become inspired to go and preach a little bit himself. And so, it was kind of a novelty. You see this tinker as a Baptist preacher, you know, <laughs> it started to draw crowds. And um, soon he was preaching as much as tinkering, and then his wife died. And so, he's, you know, juggling these responsibilities. Now, he's got the children to take care of. Um, John was actually pretty shy with women, but he was really drawn to um, this younger member of the Baptist congregation who was actually his babysitter, and her name was Elizabeth. She was about 16 or 17 years old, um, and yet even though she was only a teenager, she had a lot of really um, remarkable qualities. She was a strong believer. She handled the Bunyan children well. Like I said, she was babysitting them already, so that was very convenient. And she enjoyed talking with John about spiritual things, as if Jesus was her friend too, right? So there's like a real spiritual kinship and connection there. So they were married the following year after his first wife died in 1659 in just a very simple ceremony. What was that thing you said about her dowry? The, oh, no, no. That was his first oh, wife's Oh, the dowry. first wife's dowry. Okay. Mm -hmm. But I imagine Elizabeth's was pretty similar. Very simple, basic. They didn't have much. I mean, this, these are very poor people. So Elizabeth was very uh, different from John's first wife because Mary, John's first wife, never understood why John couldn't just stay with the status quo Anglican church. And she didn't understand why he suddenly was starting to feel so compelled to go out and preach the gospel. I mean, like I said, it was taking up as much time as, you know, his tinkering profession. So that kind of was a little odd to her. But by contrast, this is where Elizabeth really shone because she really felt called to partner with him in his calling for the kingdom of God. And so she willingly just took on the task of holding down the fort while he was away from home, whether it be because he was tinkering or because he was preaching. You know, he's starting to go around the English countryside preaching. And she was on board completely. And so even though there were a lot of challenges, as you can imagine, in, in, their, in their marriage and their finances and those kind of things, they were actually very happy very devoted to one another. 
Um, now, this was, and Cheryl kind of alluded to this earlier, this was going on during that messy transition between Oliver Cromwell's Puritan Commonwealth and the restoration of the English monarchy when Charles II came back to the throne. So this was not, not the greatest time politically in English history. It was a major transition. But, and, but with Charles II, too, there was supposed to be, he came to the throne on um, on the agreement of religious tolerance. Um, and that would be that, that, you know, because Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth had made a decree that mm-hmm. the only church that people were to attend was the Anglican church. Right. And so they wanted somebody who was more tolerant, who was not, you know, Catholic, was not uh, pro- Anglican, Anglican yeah, yeah. but somebody who would allow for the Puritans and for mm-hmm. some of yeah, these other just... things. And so the Puritans had allowed open air preaching. So Bunyan thought he was safe. Yeah, no big deal here. Right. But the problem was the Charleses. And I don't know if, right. you, want, if you remember back to a previous podcast, when we were talking about when Henry VIII issued the act of supremacy and became the head of the church in England, that meant whatever the faith of the monarch was, it was going to affle- affect the nation. Mm-hmm. It was going to affect the Anglican church. And so because Char- the Charleses, you know, like their dads before them, well, James, right? They were they all leaned Catholic. They did, and very so, heavily. Unfortunately, that made the Anglican church have more of a Catholic flavor, and he was not going to be as tolerant as hoped for. And so— Well, actually, Charles II was a partier. He really didn't care about anything. Oh, that's right. It was those who were surrounding him in the court who were uh, the politicians and oh, who yeah. were bringing these things down. In fact, um, a couple of the uh, Puritans uh, wrote letters to Charles II, and when they got to him, he was, like, surprised and oh, was gosh. like, how could this be taking place? Mm-hmm. Because he He's- really— he was really ignorant. He was disconnected. Wow. He was super disconnected. He was more about what was going on in the court of France because that's where he grew up well, than what was going on in the country of England. That makes sense. And that's that's part of the issue, too, why things got messy. And mm. um, I can't remember right now the name of uh, this uh, zealous general he had. Interesting. Who was actually the one carrying out uh, orders that were not from Charles directly. Oh my gosh. But that happened a lot when you have those alliances with different countries. That's right. People are always going right. to be more attached to their right. home country, you know, some of these monarchs. And so it was very hard for them to, you know, right. Right. separate. Right. So, uh, but as, it's the messy time. It is. It's just so <laughs> messy, basically. And so as a Baptist and a, well, we would now class, we class him with the Puritans. Um, right. But, you know, technically he was a Baptist. And so as a result, John was considered a dissenter or a nonconformist. They had a bunch of different terms that they used for these. And you're probably familiar with this from our previous podcasts. And so because he was a dissenter from the Church of England, he was definitely under fire from the powers that be, especially because his preaching had started to become very popular and influential. Again, he was quite a sight to see this tinker, you know, basically like a door-to-door salesman out there preaching. And, you know, it was just... I don't know. It was drawing too much of a crowd. And so November 12, 1660, just a year after his marriage to Elizabeth, John was hauled off to prison for three months. In fact, he would spend most of the next 12 years in and out of prison for preaching the gospel and refusing to back down. Um, He actually said to them at one point, if I am freed today, I will preach tomorrow. So he's like, hey, you know, you can let, you know, you can leave me in here as long as you want. There's actually a story. I'm not sure if it's a true story, but it's one like kind of an anecdote about him that uh, at one point they actually left the prison door open 
and put a document at, at a table at the end of the hall and said, you can walk out of this prison at any time you want if you will just sign that document that says you won't preach anymore. Wow. Yeah. They like made it like just very open. Hey, yeah. you can go at any time. But it is so. interesting, too, that Pilgrim's Progress was written um, in prison. Well, he was in prison. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. That's Which pretty is, significant. I mean, considering, though, that he's a tinker and he's very poor. He was highly intelligent mm. and he was literate, which yeah. is unusual at unusual, that time in, right. that, mm -hmm. in the English countryside for mm -hmm. sure. So you can imagine with this in and out of prison thing. And I mean, this was a very, very hard time for the Bunyans. In fact, upon finding out about John's first imprisonment, Elizabeth actually had a mis miscarriage from the shock, um, which was super tragic. And John himself wrote that the parting with my wife and poor children has often been to me in this place as the pulling of my flesh from my bones. Um, but the remarkable thing about Elizabeth is that not only did she faithfully support John in his stance, she never pressured him to just cave like, please just stop preaching. Aren't you don't you care about your family? She never did that. She faithfully supported him, visited him every day. And she even went down to London in his defense. Um, what happened was when Charles officially restored the monarchy in 1660, he actually released hundreds of prisoners to kind of commemorate the occasion. And so Elizabeth, took this as an opportunity to try to get a, you know, get a good word in with Charles on behalf of John. And Again, so, that's what the people, the country knew. If you can get to Charles. Yeah. Yeah. He's lenient, clearly. Right. You he, can, he's a little if nicer. you can get to Charles. <laughs> and that was the problem. Yep, exactly. So uh, this and it's, you know, it's amazing, too. We think, oh, that's cool. So she went down to London. But again, remember, this is a poor girl in the English countryside. I, I'm sure she had never been to London before. Most people never went, you know, more than a couple miles from their house back then. So this was a big thing for this young girl. She's still a teenager, probably about 18 years old, to go down to London to try to plead the cause of her husband with the Earl of Bedford. Um, that would have been the, you know, uh, nobleman responsible for Bedfordshire for that area. And so bravely, she goes to the city to plead her cause and, you know, goes before a whole panel of judges. Kind of reminds me of, you know, Jesus' parable, you know, the widow and the unjust judge, because she just kept going over and over again. She was rejected multiple times, but continued to bring her petition. Um, at one point, while she was telling about her family's, like, dire situation, you know, they're so impoverished, um, and even just the injustice of all of this uh, being done to her husband— it looked for a minute like the judges might soften, but, you know, in their mind, the law is the law. It says if any preacher does not fall in line with the Anglican church, then he's a lawbreaker. Sorry, can't help you there. So sadly, it did not end as well as that parable that Jesus told. Um, Elizabeth and the children basically just would have to tough it out for the next 12 years. And one biographer said the cruelest aspect of an imprisonment like Bunyan's was that it made an entire family destitute. The Friends of the Bedford meeting kept the Bunyan family out of a sense of religious duty, but the congregation was a poor one, and charity is a chancy sort of income. The hardships must have been considerable, uh, to say the least. Again, it's, you know, we have to, like, really try to put ourselves in her shoes to see what a desperate situation this was. And yet, again, like I said, what I love about her, we don't know tons about her, and we don't have this big, long story here, but um, what I love about her was the fact that she— sensed the call of God on her husband's life and was willing to support him so that um, he didn't feel like he had to stop what God called him to do. It was really amazing. And so finally in 1672, John was released. Um, he was imprisoned once more in 1676, and that was the imprisonment when he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Mm. And so 
there we see, you know, the Lord can use absolutely anything for his glory. And a lot of times he uses the suffering and the hardship to bring about the greatest fruit. Now, there is a story that when she went to plead for John Bunyan, Mm. that, um, you know, she said, look, I've got four children. I've had a miscarriage. Our oldest is blind. We need the money. And one of the men was so cold, he said, you know, your husband is only a preacher because he can make more money at that than being a tinker. Oh, my God! And then he added that Bunyan was preaching the teachings of the devil. And this is what she replied. My Lord, when the righteous judge shall appear, it will be known that his doctrine is not the doctrine of the devil. Mm. In the end, Elizabeth left the room in tears, and she later told her husband she was mostly crying for the men's hard hearts, knowing that God would judge them unless they repented. Isn't that amazing? That is that's like, pretty amazing. Right. With her, all of her own desperate mm-hmm. needs that she was concerned about their souls. I mean, that is just wow. So <laughs> I remember reading a book a, a long time ago, though, about just how God's provision to Elizabeth mm-hmm. and the family mm-hmm. when um, mm-hmm. there's a— um, there's a book called The Woman Who Rode the Back of John Bunyan's um, on the Back of John Bunyan's Horse. And that's what I had. I forgot. It's an old, oh, old book. Oh, fun. I want to find that. I've never yeah, heard of that. Yeah, I got it. Okay. So you'll have to come over. Okay, yeah. You're... <laughs> but um, in that, it, it talked about how the Lord amazingly provided for Elizabeth mm-hmm. and the children and just the means and the way of God's provision for them. And she just was a woman of such Faith. Wow. Tell the children stories of faith. Mm. It's all coming back to me now. Oh, I <laughs> love like, it. Oh. No, no, no. And that's that's so true, right? If you mm-hmm. really it's it's a true testament to the fact that if you seek first the kingdom of God, all these things will be added. You know, they put the Lord first and God totally provided mm-hmm. and took care of them. So um and, and look and look at the blessing to the world. I mean, mm-hmm. oh my goodness, through his his book. I mean, yeah, of course, his preaching, leading people to Christ with that book. My goodness. So mm-hmm. ultimately, um, John was freed until his death in 1688, the year, which is crazy that he died the year that the Glorious Revolution happened, where William and Mary took the throne of England and brought li- religious freedom in England mm-hmm. all the way up till today. I mean, that's mm-hmm. where it all completely changed and went Protestant. So <laughs> ironically, he died that year. Um, Elizabeth survived him by three years, and she died in 1691. But again, it's it's just so obvious that without her support, he wouldn't have been able or had the freedom to do all that he did for the kingdom of God. And so it's really sweet because he wrote, uh, a wife is to be subject to her husband, but not to be her husband's slave. She is his yoke fellow, mm-hmm. his flesh and bones. The husband, if his wife is a believer, should so love her that their life together may preach the marriage of Christ to his church. And I think that really just sums up their marriage. And John wrote some other things, too, just about women in general, because women had been so instrumental in his Mm -hmm. life. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, those Baptist ladies and, Mm -hmm. you know, his first wife to some extent, but especially Elizabeth. um, Just so neat that they both had that perspective that they were a team. And, you know, it's interesting because in Pilgrim's Progress, two of the heroines are, you know, Christiana. Mm, Christiana, yeah. Who become saved and then Mercy. Mm -hmm. Um, And they both uh, feature prominently in Pilgrim's Progress. That's true. That's, yeah, so good. If you haven't read Pilgrim's Progress, you need Mm -hmm. to go do that. What's his um, autobiography? It's it's not Amazing Grace. That's John Newton, but it's, um, Mm. it's something about grace. I'll look it up. Yeah, look it up. And we'll, we'll transition good, here while yes. you're looking. We'll yes. spill some time here. <laughs> so that brings us to our next gal who lived um, a couple decades later in the 1700s, Sarah Edwards. 
And her last name might sound familiar, too, because she was the wife of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards, of course, is a famous preacher uh, for his ministry during uh, the Great Awakening in the United States. Uh, He's also considered America's first great philosopher, um, author of a famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Um, But a lot of people don't know much about the woman behind the man. So that's the other gal I wanted to talk about. And and her story is going to probably go into our next episode, just so you know. But uh, did you find the name of the book? Grace Abounding. Grace Abounding. That's right. I've heard. Yes. I knew it said about Grace. I read that too, which is, it's excellent. Oh, so cool. So We'll put that on the, we'll put that on the list, even though it's, that's a man worth knowing, but that's okay. (laughs) We can do that. We can throw them in there. Yes. (laughs) We'll throw them in the bus. Absolutely. In the bus. (laughs) Yeah. With her. (laughs) So, um, Jonathan and Sarah Edwards' uh, marriage made a really profound impact during the Great Awakening, which, if you don't know, it was a very important revival in the American colonies. It really peaked between 1739 and 1741, but there were some little scattered revivals before that, and we'll talk about that as we go here. Um, It's interesting because the great preacher and revivalist George Whitfield, who was another key player in the Great Awakening, he said, a sweeter couple I have not yet seen. In fact, while he was staying at the Edwards house, he was so impressed with um, Sarah's practicality, but also her spirituality, that he later wrote, she is a woman adorned with a meek and quiet spirit. She talked feelingly and solidly of the things of God and seemed to be such a helpmeet to her husband that she caused me to renew those prayers, which for months I have put up to God that he should be pleased to send me a daughter of Abraham to be my wife. And so he had actually for a time just felt like, nah, I'm not going to get married. It would probably be a hindrance to the ministry. Um, but Sarah played a really important role in showing him what a what a benefit and what an asset it could be to have a godly wife who was supporting you. And so that was pretty neat. Um, but at the same time, it's interesting because some say it's remarkable their marriage did so well. One author actually wrote a book about Sarah called Marriage to a Difficult Man. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and because because of their personalities, I presume uh, she was very intelligent, very sensitive woman, um, a little bit more leaning on the mystical side. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Jonathan was very logical, very practical. He was moody and he was a deep feeler, but he was also just very he was a philosophical genius. And so he was very, like I said, logic driven. He recorded everything um, as if he was just taking an observation scientifically. And so. It was a very um, unusual relationship, but it's sweet. Jonathan himself called it an uncommon union, and it was very rare. They had a really um, beautiful, like-minded, self-sacrificing relationship, as we'll see. So Sarah Pierpont was the beautiful daughter of the well-known minister in New Haven, Connecticut, and the granddaughter of a Puritan. Like I said, we're dealing with Puritan Mm -hmm. lineage here. Puritan Thomas Hooker, who is considered the founder or one of the founders of Connecticut. Interestingly, that was her grandpa. So obviously we're looking at a a young woman who was a member of the social elite in colonial America. She was, you know, educated, well-bred, all that good stuff. Well, her father was one of the first to help start Yale University. Yes. Very good. So, yeah, clearly. obviously was educated, which is something that we've got to say about the reformers is Mm. they were the first to really— Invest in the education of women. Yes, they and were. They, they really believed that women should be educated, which remember up to this point, women weren't considered worthy of an education, believe yeah. it or not. Yeah. So to find these educated women was really special. 
Totally. And that's a great point because, yeah, the Reformation began that and then the Puritans continued that legacy, especially when they came to the American colonies. And so one reason why there was so much literacy in the American mm -hmm. colonies was because the Puritans wanted everybody to learn to read the Bible. That's so right. They made sure boys and girls, everybody could read. Mm -hmm. And so all of the Ivy League schools, all those, you know, original universities were founded as seminaries and, you know, um, but it was all to promote education. Big deal. Right. So um, when she was only 13, Sarah already had a swarm of suitors, as you can imagine. It's like, ooh, not only, you know, is she pretty, but she also has all these nice connections, right, with her family. <laughs> um, and tall, gangly Jonathan Edwards was one of those guys who was in line to meet Sarah. And a lot of the other young men were uh, very charming and very dashing, but Sarah was really attracted to Jonathan because of their, uh, they had kindred spirits. They shared a love of nature and literature and especially the things of God. And of course, Jonathan thought she was amazing as well. In fact, in his admiration of her, um, her spirituality, her piety, <laughs> he um, wrote this little ode to her in the front of his Greek grammar book. Um, and you read, if you read any biographies on them, this is always in there. They say there is a young lady in New Haven who is beloved of that great being who made and rules the world and that there are certain seasons in which the great being in some way or another invisible comes to her and fills her mind with exceeding sweet delight and that she hardly cares for anything except to meditate on him. She has a strange sweetness in her mind and singular purity in her affections, is most just and conscientious in all of her conduct, and you could not persuade her to do anything wrong or sinful if you would give her all the world. Now, of course, <laughs> that's probably a little bit exaggerated. Oh, she would never sin. She's so perfect. You know, obviously, it's a little exaggerated by his uh, love for her. He was very smitten. But it, it's true that Sarah really was uncommon and uh, godly. She had a very deep spirituality beyond just a surfacey, um, churchy kind of a girl. She didn't just go to church and do her duty. She really, really loved the Lord and and talked with him, kind of like what we were just talking about with John Bunyan, you know, treating Jesus as a friend. Sarah definitely had that kind of relationship with the Lord. She would go for walks and just talk to God. I mean, uh, that was unusual. And so Jonathan was really drawn to that um, unique quality in her. So after a few years of patient courtship, because she was only 13 after all, my goodness, um, they finally were married July 20th, 1727. He was 23. She was 17. And then they moved. I know it's just crazy. Then they moved to Northampton, which is in central Massachusetts. And that's where they would spend the next 23 years of marriage and ministry. And so they got plugged in, settled in very well there. Now, uh, this was actually at the time... Uh, it was a step up from frontier life. You weren't living like quite, you know, you weren't quite roughing it. It wasn't like you were just living out with the Native Americans and everything necessarily. But, but this they was were just townships. Definitely nothing. And they nothing. were all made of wood. And so they were highly flammable townships. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And nothing like New Haven. Oh, no, my gosh. That no. was the big city. And so, <laughs> yeah, they were city slickers coming out to the country. And especially for Sarah, who had expensive taste because of the way she grew up. This was really challenging, but mm -hmm. um, they really felt like the Lord was calling them to this parish. It was it was still considered the most significant one outside of Boston, believe it or not. So um, the Lord would use that time in New Hampton, Northampton for a much greater purpose than they realized. So um, right from the get-go, Jonathan and Sarah were very devoted to one another, like I said. Um, and true to their Puritan upbringing and theology— they really viewed their relationship as a reflection of the Christian's relationship with God. 
And I don't know if it was the Puritans that really brought that out, the idea of, um, you know, the picture of the bride and, you know, bride of Christ and, and Jesus as pictured in marriage, Christ and church. I don't know. But that was a very important theme to the Puritans, that your marriage should reflect the relationship of Christ and the church. And so— um, there, Which brought so much honor to women mm-hmm. that women did not formally have. That is actually a really good point. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so, you know, the Puritans get dogged for some things, and rightly so. When we if, when we talk about, like, um, what's her name? Anne, uh, ah, Anne Hutchinson. Oh, my right, goodness. Right, right. Yeah. Yes. You see, like, the yes. Puritans could get really, like, oh, gosh, you guys. But they did have some really fine qualities. <laughs> yes. And Anne Hutchinson is for another day. Yes. But yes. we will, we will definitely get there. That's another Puritan story. Yes. Um, yes. But are you going to mention how many children they have? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Because there's something special about that, too. Oh, okay. When we get—yes. Yes. Um, So uh, their marriage, though, because they had that view of, you know, we're representing Christ in the church, they obviously had a foundation and love for one another, but there was a love and a commitment to God first— and that they wanted to really represent him well in their marriage and, and be there for the furtherance of this kingdom. That was kind of the goal in even moving to Northampton and recognizing that, yes, this is a f- almost a frontier kind of a life, but we could further the kingdom of God here. And really, you see in their biographies, they really highlight the selflessness that they had in their pursuit of a godly marriage. And so uh, Sarah was, like I said, a deeply spiritual woman. Uh, it was funny. I was looking sometimes— I will confess, I go to Wikipedia just to find dates for things or like Absolutely. names. You know, okay, we don't go there as a key source. Don't worry, folks. But <laughs> they do have like information on that. So I was looking up the, I think the year she died or something like that. And um, Wikipedia actually says that it, it says Sarah Edwards mystic. I was like, whoa, that's weird. They actually label her that uh, on their uh, title page. Well, so I think a mystic is anyone who says they talk to God. Yeah, maybe that's why. <laughs> Um, in fact, one of the, their biographers, her name's Edna Gerstner, she claims that uh, Sarah's spirituality was actually a huge influence on Jonathan's transition from an academic to a more personal relationship with Jesus, which is pretty cool. I mean, that's really mm-hmm. saying something. Again, like what we saw with Elizabeth Bunyan, these these women, maybe they didn't always get a lot of the acclaim and, notor- and no, uh, notoriety, notice, notoriety oh. but they really had such a profound impact on their husbands. And I think Mystic, too, was somebody who believed in the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Which she did, yes, Mm -hmm. yeah. And so that was considered suspect by a lot of even Puritans, not Mm. the Quakers, of course, but— No, no. (laughs) You know, some of the others, and especially the Anglicans, would look on that with suspicion. And yet, yes, Paul says, you know, walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So walking in the Spirit is all over the Bible. Yes. Um, And this is something that, you know, she believed in was the work of the Holy Spirit. So that was was how people got labeled mystics. And they kind of got thrown in with other mystics because of that. Yeah. So because mystics, by and large, were people who believed they could hear God speak. Yeah. Which we believe God speaks. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. But mystic was for those who were more on the fringes. So anyone after that, you know, after something like that, you know how it is. Somebody is kind of strange, and then if you want to discount somebody, you throw them, you know, just label with that. them. Yeah, other oh, mm-hmm. mystics. Yeah, exactly. But she was, and and it's interesting too. You mentioned that I, I wasn't. Well, I guess we could go ahead and just mention this. I don't want to get too far down a rabbit trail here, but the Great Awakening—that was a key with the Great Awakening—was it was a pouring out of the, the Holy, Holy Spirit, Spirit. Mm-hmm. and so after that, people like her would be a uh, part of what they called the New Lights, right. and the Old Lights would have been those 
older staunch traditionalists and the Anglicans especially, and they were very suspicious of that. And so actually it's good that you brought that out because that is kind of what she was, you know, leaning towards. And this is before the Great Awakening even happened. She just naturally had that spirituality and that love for the Lord. So fortunately, uh, Gerstner says, this Sarah who walked with God also walked in the fields, head in the clouds, her feet never left the earth, and she did remain a practical wife. <laughs> and so not surprisingly, their home was a, a real ministry house. It was always full of guests that were impacted by the entire Edwards family. And Jonathan's uh, theological teaching and Sarah's compassion, her joy, her love, they were a really powerful combination that changed a lot of people's lives, um, including this young man named Samuel Hopkins. And um, he actually wrote a lot about the Edwards because he stayed with them. He actually liked one of their daughters. She shut him down, but he, he was kind of a family friend. So it's kind of neat because we get a window into their family from him. Yeah, and so it's neat. Like I said, Samuel Hopkins wrote a lot about them. I'll be reading a couple of uh, his quotes, actually. One biographer said that guests usually were more affected by the character of the home than by anything Jonathan Edwards may have said to them in conversation. Kind of like some of those Reformation wives we looked at. They made just as much of an impact as their husbands because people saw the faith lived out. They saw it happening, Jesus moving and working in the family. And so really beautiful witness. And, and that's exactly what, you know, the Puritans believed that the family could be a witness, and it mm -hmm. still is. Mm -hmm. um, I know Brian and I, when we've gone out before, people are like, what's the secret of your marriage, having been married right. 42 years? Yes. You know, <laughs> why are you still happy? I mean, it just isn't done. Mm. And, you know, we're able to say it's the Lord. Yes. And, and when you live it out. But this is part one, right? Yes. There's we'll, so much yes. more about <laughs> Uh, Sarah, and even some of their daughters are really interesting, and we hope to highlight just a little bit about that in part two. So you want to come back for part two? Um, until then, uh, yes. remember, send us your stories. Um, we're not only open to suggestions, but we also want to know a little bit about maybe your story mm. or maybe, you know, a tribute to your mother or an aunt or somebody who's a woman worth knowing because of the influence or the impact that they've had on your life. So we want you to send that to womenworthknowing at graciouswords.com or graciouswords.com and then go to women worth knowing. Right. We would love to hear from you. Is it you. on the women.cccm.com? Do we have that link too? Uh, they were supposed to put it back up, but uh -oh. I wasn't sure. So I just okay. thought I'll Might go with glitch, the folks. safest one. <laughs> Good. Okay. Which is definitely we'll go gracious gracious words. words. That's safe. <laughs> <laughs> so until next week, this is Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnut saying... Ta-ta for now. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnett. For more information on Cheryl, visit CherylBroderson.com or follow her on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow Jasmine on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. If you think there is a woman worth knowing, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at wwk at cccm.com. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you've subscribed and don't forget to rate us on your podcast app and share it with friends. Thank you again for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnett.